You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a story that Franklin Roosevelt was talking with one of his older New York State political operators, Lewis Howe, a guy who had come from the rumble and tumble of New York City politics, and Franklin from New Hyde Park and a wealthy aristocratic family. And Howe said to Roosevelt, you've got to relate to the working man. And Franklin said, I do. I am a member of the Democratic Party. That's the party of the common man. And Howe said, what have you got in common with the common man? And Franklin Roosevelt raised his glass to his lips and took a sip. Drinking is not an ancillary subject when discussing Franklin Roosevelt, because had it not been for the Great Depression and certainly not for World War II as well, you might remember Franklin Roosevelt as the president who ended prohibition. That was his major campaign issue in 1933. In fact, so many of the New Deal programs that we talked about, we talk about all the time, were not part of the 1933 platform. And although some were proposed, certainly like a kind of a work program was proposed at different times, there was equal amount of talking on the 1932 campaign about conserving money in the budget as well and, and, and how Hoover was spending too much. The issue that was stark between Roosevelt and Hoover was that Roosevelt wanted to bring a repeal to prohibition. That being said, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was something of uh, what was called a, a wet but not a soaking wet by his friends, particularly in Georgia, where given that was the president's uh, summer home, he had some friends there. And when he started to run for president, you know, he found Georgia to be very receptive to his message because he had connections there and he had worked that state's politics pretty well and he was obviously a big investor in that state. That state was dry so he had to develop a policy that was in between and one of the things that is not well known about the 21st is that the 21st doesn't just give you the right to have a beer. It gives regulation of liquor, takes it away from the federal government and gives it to the states so that those states that are dry can enforce, and the federal government and Congress can make no law infringing on the ability of states to regulate liquor. So he was something of a, a wet, but not a soaking wet, separating his presidency from personal life. Franklin Roosevelt was an avid fan 
of drinking. And he was, by most accounts, one of these people who would every day when business was done in the White House, something they called the the children's hour <laughs> or uh, or a variety of other names. And the president was certainly the mixologist in chief. And so we discussed a bit about that in the episode about the 1944 vice presidential nomination and how a meeting over martinis uh, determined perhaps the fate of the presidency. But those type of meetings were not uncommon at all. And usually Roosevelt was the bartender. He experimented with um, a variety of drinks. Um, one of the drinks was called the Haitian libation. And it, it was difficult to say, you know, what was in it. <laughs> but uh, it certainly involved rum and sugar and various uh, other spirits. Roosevelt, as we kind of alluded to on that cast, had his favorite presidential cocktail shaker, and it was um, had a motif of bamboo, but it was silver, sterling silver, and it had a case that was maroon leather and on the inside blue velvet. Now, this was something that traveled around with the president. <laughs> But Franklin Roosevelt's drink was the martini. And there's a lot of different stories about his martinis, but they all seem to have this consensus. He would constantly change the recipe up. And the idea behind a martini is that it's simply, you know, a gin drink. I know these days it's it's all about vodka. That wouldn't have been touched in those days in a martini. They would have had vodka and other things, but not in a martini. And uh, so it's mostly gin with a small amount of vermouth. Uh, Roosevelt's martinis, you would up the vermouth and and shake it, shake it briskly, which in effect, you're making a uh, a weak martini that way. You know, Roosevelt was, years before James Bond, a shaken, not stirred guy. Here's what Samuel Roseman said in a 1952 book, Working with Roosevelt. The president, without bothering to measure, would add one ingredient after another, to his cocktails. To my unpracticed eye, he seemed to experiment on each occasion with a different percentage of vermouth, gin, and fruit juice. At times, he varied it with rum, especially rum from the Virgin Islands. One of his infamous concoctions, we referenced this on the last podcast, was mixing gin with the herbal liquor Benedictine. Benedictine is a very rarely used liquor. Uh, it's kind of one of these things where it was a, a recipe found by ancient monks in the 1300s, and uh, it was recreated uh, in the 19th century. And it's one of those things, a little bit of it might taste okay, too much of it, and you're talking about something with the flavor of rusty nails. There's different accounts. Robert H. Jackson, who was a key Roosevelt aide and then actually later became a Supreme Court justice, participated in many of these, you know, cocktail hours with the president. And he did say, you know, that, that Roosevelt liked, you know, one or two and maybe another after dinner or another while playing cards. Um, but that he did not tolerate a drunkenness uh, from anyone that, that worked for him and that, um, you know, he had his limit and then he was cut off. 
that could be a little whitewash because we have some other stories as well, stories of perhaps Secret Service agents having to carry him to bed, uh, stories of trips to go fishing that really were little more than going to the cabin and, and drinking with friends. You, you know, always there are always people around Roosevelt. He was also known to add a few drops, perhaps, of absinthe for flavor, according to his personal secretary, Grace Tully. The Pernod absinthe bottle would be uh, ever-present at the tray of liquor at the White House. Tully also indicates that the type of martini that uh, Roosevelt likes is three parts gin to one part vermouth, but we've heard that's that's one story. Uh, there are differing stories that it could be as much as two parts gin to one point vermouth. In other words, you're reducing the amount of gin, increasing the amount of vermouth. Vermouth is an Italian wine that is spiced, um, but it is weaker than the gin that is used and would would be used commonly in a martini. The martini is very popular. Around the time that Roosevelt would have been a budding politician, which would have involved a lot of social events and drinking, the teens, the 20s, and certainly going into prohibition. Um, gin was easier to produce. You were allowed to produce a certain amount of alcohol, you know, the so-called bathtub gin per the Volstead Act. So it wasn't completely illegal to produce it for your own consumption. And there was a lot of gin available for this reason. So the martini drink became quite popular during this period. The history of the martini is one of those things where there's a lot of legends about it and different um, you know, stories about this bartender or that invented it. So there's no story that really has precedence, but it seems pretty logical. I mean, the Manhattan, which also involves vermouth, but using rye instead, was definitely around right in the period after the Civil War, the 1870s, started to be made. So the martini seems a, a variant of this, and it also just seems like a common phrase. Because the main maker of vermouth was Martini and Ross, uh, it was very common for people to say, give me a gin and martini. And then if you're doing that over the years, eventually the drink, you know, would just drop and it will become Give me a martini. But through the aughts, the teens, and the 20s, this is the big drink, and Roosevelt picks that right up. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In case you want to make it at home, this is the recipe for the Valkyl cookbook um, for the FDR special. Two parts gin, one part dry light vermouth, olive or lemon peel for garnish, crushed ice. Shake up gin and vermouth in a container half filled with chipped ice. Pour into chilled martini glasses, straining out the ice. Add garnish. There's one element that's missing from there, and that is that apparently Roosevelt and many of his martinis liked a lot of olive brine. And that the lemon peel would be used only to rub around the cocktail glasses, not to put in the martini. His kinfolk would pressure him into using different gin-vermouth ratios. Jimmy Roosevelt suggested 3 to 1. Elliot pushed for 4 to 1. Johnny Roosevelt asked for stout 6 to 1, a pretty strong martini, but the kind of martinis that are generally served today, although more commonly now with vodka. He'd throw a little gin at the end, his grandson Curtis say. He'd throw in a little absinthe, 
Many people, and this is recorded, his grandson Curtis say, say, said, say, the president made the worst martinis I've ever tasted. Eleanor was not joining Roosevelt in these libations. Uh, her family had a severe problem. Her, she grew up with two uncles that were such lushes that uh, people were not involved, invited to the house. She was also extremely concerned about drinking and driving. FDR not so. He told his teenagers that a gentleman learns his capacity and tries not to exceed it. If he must drink to excess, he does so when he has no call to be in touch with anyone else. <laughs> As president, though, there weren't too many moments where you wouldn't have called to be in touch with anyone else. So <laughs> there seemed to be a presidential exception from that rule. FDR and uh, FDR's martinis were his favorite. He was also a fan of the old-fashioned, and this is the drink that if you were a fan of Mad Men, that's the Don Draper's drink. You'll see that it has uh, bourbon and perhaps a cherry and a lemon or orange peel. Franklin Roosevelt's drink menu, not surprisingly, is coming more from the 1890s and the aughts, um, 1880s, 1890s, aughts, martinis, old-fashioned. The old-fashioned is something that was old-fashioned when they called it an old-fashioned. The name derives from the fact that it used to just simply be called a whiskey cocktail. So rather than just having the whiskey neat or straight, you would have something added to it, usually sugar cubes or fruit, in order to sweeten it up a bit. A whiskey cocktail. And then as the, and that, that kind of a drink would have been available in the 1830s or uh, running up to the Civil War in a pub or bar. As you got to the 1880s and the 1890s, and that drink was available, particularly it became, it had a little bit of a resurgence in the 1880s in coming out of Louisville and then the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. And so since it was reminiscent of those old whiskey cocktails, it was called the Old Fashioned, since there was a sugar cube and bitters added instead of just drinking uh, the whiskey plain. Oh, I think in addition to just telling an interesting story to give you a little perspective on the real Franklin Roosevelt in that episode on the Truman VP choice, I suppose is a little bit of a metaphor for a president that was relentlessly experimenting with different types of legislation and economic ideas, relentlessly experimenting with new staff and who would be his VP or unofficial assistant president, um, man manipulating and working the various political factions so that everyone was at least working for the party, the country, and him. Now, in case we're thinking this is just uh, ancillary activities, extracurricular activities on the part of President Roosevelt, it did have somewhat of a democratic, a diplomatic purpose. Um, if you look at the two partners that Roosevelt was dealing with in World War II, Churchill and Stalin, we were talking about big drinkers. Elliot Roosevelt in later years remembered his father telling him about the Tehran Conference and the 365 toasts 
one for every day in the year during the famous conference. When British Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited the White House for two or three weeks at a time during World War II, there would be all-nighters accompanied by sniffers of brandy and hefty cigars. The president would engage him and would do what the White House staffers called keeping Winston hours. Afterward, FDR would sleep at 10 hours a night or three days in a row to recuperate. It's kind of like I could, one could imagine, I would like to see you, Mr. President. Mm, not this week. But in this case, uh, it, it helped him during the Tehran conference with Stalin. Uh, Roosevelt suggested martinis, and Stalin actually preferred uh, either Russian vodka or uh, champagne. And about martinis, Stalin said, it's cold on the stomach. Nikita Khrushchev later would even provide more details about how, at least, Soviets at that time felt about the American martini. It was America's secret weapon, he said. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs>